This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade, and the art of saddlery, with our host, Christian Love. My guest today on the Saddler's Post is qualified master saddler and fitter, Rachel Argo. Rachel began her apprenticeship under Master Saddler Andre Boubert in 1999. After seven years, Rachel earned the title SMS Master Saddler. Rachel, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the Saddler's Post. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So this podcast is about celebrating the the leather trades and the people in it and saddlery in general. Um, Particularly, I... I'm promoting apprenticeship and in particular mentorship. Uh, can you tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey into saddlery? Um, it was one of those things I, I almost sort of fell into it by accident. Uh, I'd always worked with horses most of my career. I've ridden since I was a small child and like a lot of small girls, you know, I was absolutely obsessed with horses. Um, and then I went to work for an organization called World Horse Welfare. And I spent oh, 12 years with them. Their remit is to improve the lives of horses from right across the board. It, it's a mixture of working equines in, in developing countries, um, horses in developed countries. We had uh, five centers in the UK, but there was also a team that went out internationally into some pretty rough areas where conditions for horses and their their humans was, you know, really very, very challenging. And the remit was to improve the welfare, improve the lives of the horses, and in so doing, also improve the lives of their owners, because these are working equines. They're not sport horses like the most of the horses that we see, uh, UK, Europe, and North America. And on that team that got sent out was Andre Buber, our master saddler. And, you know, I've been working with the horses quite a long time as groom, then head groom um, at the centre. We, we, our remit was welfare and rehabilitation. And we ran anywhere between 60 and 100 horses in the 12 years, every, you know, constantly in the 12 years I was there. And then we would rehome the horses on loan to approved homes. And I think in the time I was there, I think probably the best part of 800 horses went through. And most of them were, were good success stories, but obviously there were some heartbreaking ones too. And it was time to sort of start looking at making a change. And I was fortunate enough um, to express an interest in saddlery. And the our director at the time uh, was very pro-education because obviously welfare is, the improvements in welfare are linked to the improvements in education. So he was very pro-education. And I was offered the chance to apprentice with Master Saddler Andre, who he was a household cavalry and then met police Master Saddler. So I, I sort of fell into it and then I carried on. I went to the the um, Saddlery Training Centre in Salisbury um, with Mark Romain and gained my first formal qualification, which was Qualified Saddler. Um, sometime, actually it would have been, what, 2003, I think I was became Qualified Saddler. In 2006, I actually got the chance to move to Canada and we upped sticks from Scotland and moved to Canada. Um and this point, I was now a qualified saddle fitter as well. And yeah, that was that was a bit of an eye opener moving from the UK to Canada, I must admit. <laughs> yes, I know um, uh, it can be a bit of an eye opener um, when you come from <laughs> such a horse mad population like, you know, Europe where horses are 
um, you know, they're, they're a way of life and a lifestyle. And then sometimes I find when people get to Canada, they, coming from that background, they, they sometimes think we're a, a little more advanced than we are. And sometimes Canadians think they're a little more advanced than they actually are. So it's, it's like, okay, let's learn our ABCs first. And then, uh, and I, I find that's the situation with, with salary in, in North America in general is that the, the journey you took like, you know, seven years of, of training is, is pretty intense. That's, that's, uh, you can become a doctor in that time, right? Yeah, and this this is I mean, so I was I was four well, I was four years from when I started my apprenticeship to becoming a qualified saddler and a qualified saddle fitter. Um and there this is where it can get a little bit confusing, I think, for the public. There there's various different qualifications within the Society of Master Saddlers, which is our, our governing body. Um so they are actually separate things, a qualified saddler and a qualified saddle fitter. So a, a saddler to become a qualified saddler and then a master saddler involves uh, bridle making, saddle making, uh, repairs, that kind of thing. Saddle fitting was brought in as a se- separate qualification because it, in traditionally you would apprentice with a master saddler and you would learn saddle fitting at the same time. But then they felt there was a need to bring in a separate qualification that actually qualified you as a saddle fitter. Um, so yeah, seven years I became master saddler. And then actually they brought out a new qualification just the last couple of years, I think, actually, in the society, which is Master Saddle Fitter. And just to distinguish the people that, um, like myself, have been doing this for 20 years and have um, a bit more experience, a bit more knowledge. So, yeah, I, I just got, again, the Master Saddle Fitter actually just last year there. Excellent. So one thing I want to highlight and 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 for anyone listening to this that's i think it's important the term master in front of a saddlery in particular um what does that mean to to people what should it mean to them and how do they how do they know how do they take confidence that someone isn't just saying look i've been at this a while and i'm i'm going to appoint myself this title I think that's actually a really good question and I, I do know at the moment um, one of the things I see a problem with is an awful lot of organizations popping up claiming master titles there's all sorts of various uh, saddle fitting organizations and this and that and the next thing um, so I I'm a member of the Society of Master Saddlers in the UK which is a very very old society and actually has formal qualifications where you must sit formal exams, reach a minimum standard, um, ideally through an apprenticeship and then doing formal exams like at, at the college or the salary training center, which is what I did. Um, master is a title that's that's given to you. It, you don't sit an exam for it, but it's based on your work, what you've done, recommendations and approval of your of your peers, uh, master saddlers within the society. So it's a title that you're given only if you can show um, they feel that you're actually worthy of the title master. Um, and that's why it takes a minimum of seven years and recommendations from others. And I do think this is a huge problem and it's not just in saddlery. It's a huge problem right across the board that people can go and do maybe a two-week course or you know, train with a, a brand or some one brand, 
and hang their shingle and say, I'm a saddle fitter, I'm a saddler, I'm a, a master saddle fitter, whatever. But there's not a, a structure behind it. Um, and I, I like being a, a, a member of the SMS as well, because also with the SMS, you, you, have a, you have a governing body, you have a set of rules, you have standards. And there's also backup for the client where if if they run into difficulties with a member if they have a complaint they can go to the society and they will be heard and it will be investigated so the client also has a backup they know there's a minimum standard there there's a backup from the society where they can get a second opinion um, and in very very rare cases if somebody's done something truly awful in the society they can be booted out um, it's not very common certainly but I, I think that these days it's worth investigating as a horse owner i'm a horse owner myself it's worth investigating who are you dealing with what are their qualifications um get recommendations not just from other horse owners but actually really look in depth in their qualifications because there is so much out there and there's constantly different schools popping up everywhere and some of them you you look at and you think oh that looks you know somebody really put some thought into that and other ones just make you cringe yeah, I, I agree. I mean, part of what I'm trying to do here is promote that, you know, people do, uh, for the client perspective, I want to educate them on questions to ask so that when someone says, I'm a master, or even I'm a, I see people saying they're qualified, but they don't mention by what body or mm-hmm. it. And because it's, um, I'm always amazed, actually, that people tend not to really delve into people's backgrounds or double check their credentials so it's uh they seem to uh, say well i'll just say the following and that'll get me in and um kind of that fake it till you make it and that's where you see a lot of saddle and saddle fitting uh tragedies i call it you know uh, i mean it is um you know every owner i think is trying to advocate for their horse the best possible care and they're taking people at face value. So um, for people that um, want to learn a little bit more about the society, they obviously can go to um, the Society of Master Saddlers website and they can see a list of members and what their qualifications are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know one of, the, one of the problems we've been seeing a bit lately is that there are so many different categories within that. And people do get somewhat confused um, as to the different standards. And you do have to wade through a little bit of of, um, uh, literature to find out which one is which and what they all mean. Um, It would be nice if it was it was nice and simple. But yes, you can you can go to the website, you can look up people's the the qualification they have. And you can also look up on this, like what's actually involved in that level of qualification. And I was saying, you know, that it, not to not to discredit any other organization, but I do think you need to be able to go to people's website and look and see what it's covered. And I also think that for professionals like ourselves, I have absolutely no problem with people sending me a message or phoning me and saying, OK, well, I think I might like you to come and fit my saddle. But can you tell me a bit about myself? What are your theories? What have you done? What's your experience? And I think if if people genuinely have the horse's welfare at heart, you don't mind asking questions. I have no problem when I'm in the middle of a saddle fit, people talking to me, asking questions, watching what I'm doing. I I, I like to have total transparency. 
Um, and, I, and I think it's something that's very important that people are not afraid to actually go and question professionals and say, well, what's your, what is your training? What have you done? You know? Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm a huge advocate. I say to people all the time when they tell me about a maybe a rough experience they've had or, you know, that it was less, it, it wasn't what they were expecting. And I always say to them, you know, just keep asking questions the, the whole time because the, the professional will educate, will take their time, will not railroad you into to anything. Um, and you need to know if they say the solution to this particular situation may be a different saddle. It's not a sales gimmick. It's actually the only advice that they can give that's in the best interest of horse and rider. And that's, you know, it's critical that you're dealing with a professional. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I, and I think this is also one of the difficulties that if, if people are tied to one specific brand, um, it's everybody has the right to make a living. Um, it is difficult. I think if you only have one brand, if there's not something in that, that range of saddles that quite works, is there going to be a temptation to put on something that's not quite right? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I, I think I agree with you that the, the advice given has to be in the best interest of the horse and the rider too. Um, and, and, I've had a lot of clients over the years who've also been pressured into buying saddles because, um, you know, this is the only saddle that will ever work for your horse. And, you know, it's a bargain at however many thousands, fill in the blanks here kind of thing. Um, and you come along, you know, it's not quite right. And then they get hold of you and you go along and you're like, oh, this is, this is not good. Um, and then it, for me, it's a doubly bad situation because you've got the welfare of the horse and rider. The horse is suffering. The rider is stressed. Um, and then you've also it, it doesn't shed a good light on the rest on saddlery trade in general. Um, and I have had people where I've gone into barns for a new client, and they've obviously had people through before who have pressure sales. Um, and the negativity you walk into the barn, the negativity that's directed towards you and the suspicion right from the start is is quite disturbing, to be honest. You know, you're like, oh, okay. This is not really what uh, what I expect. And there was one right back early on in Canada where I actually uh, put, picked up my tools and said, and it wasn't the client. It was the it was the the um, the trainer of the client was so anti saddler. I actually picked my tools up and said, I'm sorry, I can't work under these conditions. And I started to walk out, and she immediately stopped and said, No, 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 please come back, please come back. And I thought, Well, and when I thought about it, it yes, she she was somewhat aggressive with me but I also kind of understood why you know um, and down the line we formed a really good relationship and we worked together quite successfully for many years and it, you know it, it was great but but yes it is difficult I think yeah so I, I, yeah it is frustrating when you're having to pay for the sins of of another and it's um it just takes up valuable time that you could be donating towards the efforts of, of a quality, quality fit, quality experience for the customer. So back to the actual apprenticeship, like while you were going through that, you know, I, I, again, thinking of someone listening to this, the podcast really catered at people looking for, you know, a peek behind the curtain, you know, 
do I recommend my child do this? Or look, I've been in the same job for 20 years. I'm sitting at a desk is not fulfilling maybe a second career because I'm, you know, expanding my passion for horses. When you're doing that apprenticeship, the business side of it, like, did you, were you confident that you could make a living when you were done? Yes, I was. It, I mean, things changed a little bit when I went to Canada because, you know, working in the UK is very different. You haven't got the distances involved. Um, and I, I had to think very carefully about how to do things. And, and honestly, I made mistakes in the beginning in Canada. And I, I probably still do make mistakes, to be honest. I'm more of a horseman than a businessman, if I'm being really honest. Um, but yes, there is a good living to be made. I think that the danger in the saddlery trade is that we tend to undervalue ourselves. Um, and when you think on the, on the grand scheme of things, or how expensive horses are to keep, to pay a saddler, you know, whatever you charge, a couple of hundred dollars, whatever you charge for saddle fitting twice a year, is not really an exorbitant cost. It's probably one of the cheaper things that you can do is maintain your saddle fit. Um, but potentially can save you thousands in, you know, remedial fees, vets fees, whatever. Um, I do think there is a good living to be made. I think this is where, as a trade, we need to to not be in competition with each other as much as we need to bring the trade up, put it in the forefront and say this is critical in your in your um, toolkit for your your horse's welfare. If the horse's saddle doesn't fit, the rider will not be balanced. The horse will have to compensate for the rider's lack of balance. It will, it will compensate for any areas of discomfort it may feel. It will change its movement. The, the stresses will become much greater on certain parts of the horse's. Another long term, you're looking at, at possibly losing years of, of work off your horse's life, not to mention the pain you're going to cause the horse. And it's also riders, if, if a rider is constantly sitting unbalanced and crooked, they're also going to end up possibly losing many, many years of riding through physical injury. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a very, very important aspect. And I do think there is a good living to be made um, as long as we're, we're all sensible about how we approach salary and we, we present a united professional front to our clients. Yeah, I agree. And I do feel there's a good living to be made. And uh, it took me forever to realize to stop uh, undervaluing myself as well. Because <laughs> you, you go from, uh, unfortunately, my path into it was, you know, learning on the go. And it, it was, uh, although I had a master saddler as a, a mentor, um, you know, we were still hustling to keep the business side of things going and stuff. And it was simply because just stop, do less, charge more and concentrate on, on, um, doing what you do best. Right. Um, I, I have a question and I, and I feel, you know, I, I don't know if you can speak to it, but do you feel it's a trade that is, um, you know, man, woman, there's no, yeah, I guess you see in the trade a few more men that are actually physically making saddles, but I, I feel like, and, and then that bridle making, you tend to see more women, but generally there is, that's personal preference. It, it is man, woman, 
it doesn't really seem to matter. Like if a, if a young woman's um, in high school thinking about what to do next, this is a totally acceptable route to take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I feel that sadly trade is is very equal opportunity whether you're male or female. I don't think it makes any difference. Um, I've taught for many many years at the American Salary School, um, and we have probably more women than men coming through, and a lot of those actually go on to the saddle making course and are producing some absolutely beautiful work. So I think it's it's one of those things that it's. It requires a lot of, well, as you know, it requires quite a lot of hand strength when you're working with leather constantly. Um, but yes, there's absolutely nothing precluding women from going into the trade at all. And actually, a lot of the master saddlers I know and sad master saddle fitters, qualified saddlers, some of the best harness makers are women. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely something that I think anybody can consider. Awesome. Yeah, I felt the same way, and I'm I'm glad that you agree. And as far as you know, I kind of I had said in a previous podcast, you know, you could plunk me anywhere. If there's horses around, there's probably a demand for saddlery skills or just leather, leather in general. I'm sure when you when you arrived in Canada, once people understood what you were capable of, and um, you know that, that there's a there's a shortage of qualified slash experienced leather people, so you you could hit the ground running fairly quickly. Yes, uh, and I yeah I also agree with that. I think you can pretty much go anywhere, um, and and you can if you have those skills in leather work, whether it's horses or whether it's something else. So my my project just the last couple of weeks uh, was reseating. Uh, motorcycle seats for a for a trike. Um, I do a lot of work for dogs as well. Uh, I've even done draft harness for a Bouvier in Canada. Um, so yeah, there's basically you could you can turn your hand to an awful lot of stuff. It doesn't just have to be limited to the saddlery trade or bridle making or harness making. You can pretty much turn it to anything. So you might start off as a saddler, but you could diversify and go into other things. And the guy I did the motorcycle seats was, oh, well, we need to let people know that you're doing bike seats. And I was like, okay, no, I think I'm I'm okay. I don't mind doing the odd one. But obviously there is a market there. And you see some of these guys going on and making amazing uh, saddlebags for bikes, all sorts of really interesting projects. Yeah, nice. Um, I agree. <laughs> There's, so sometimes when I step outside of saddlery it's uh, refreshing because it's a little bit of a, an adventure like oh I'm turn my hand to that and see but um yeah always the response is I'm gonna tell everybody I'm like please don't <laughs> it's already <laughs> already a long enough week and um you know I've had my kind of sorbet here <laughs> now it's back to what I'm <laughs> passionate about um and in North America for someone to do, and I, I know we have a, a handful that have um, go to the American school. This is, again, kind of circling back to the society. Do you strongly recommend that someone starting their career, that they stay focused on learning the basics from the right um, starting point rather than say jumping into a brand 
saying, hey, look, we'll train you. Don't worry about it. Yes, I I mean, I, I stand very firmly behind that, um, that I think you need to have a good working knowledge uh, of the horse, of the rider, of the biomechanics, how the horse and the rider function together, a, the knowledge of saddle structure, saddle design, saddle construction, the materials used, um, bridles, bridle fitting. Uh, you need to have a really broad knowledge. And this takes time. I mean, traditionally, you know, in the UK, you would have an apprenticeship and then you would go to somewhere else like to, to do your exams and things. And that's how you come up in Canada and North America. I mean, really, it's very difficult. It's a totally different model because you could be hours away from a master saddler. Um, you may not have the chance to do an apprenticeship or you can possibly do an apprenticeship with someone who's kind of grandfathered in from their father or whatever in making saddles and things. Um, it's it's very, very challenging, I think, more so over there than it was in the UK. Although I think being in Portugal now, I think Europe is a little challenging too, to be honest. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think you can emphasize enough the, the advantages, in fact, the necessity of having a really good, solid base that's not biased to a single product. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that because I, I find it a shame when someone's left a you know a few days clinic or course and they've you know that saying drink the kool-aid and it's they've left with a a single view almost and of course it makes sense it was cleverly presented and well marketed and and it may not even be incorrect it's just biased (laughs) you know so it's kind of like okay that's just a starting point but I think for North Americans, and that's that's where I come from, you know, I'm Canadian out of, you know, by British parents. I had a father who did the traditional apprenticeship in, in cabinet making and joint joinery. And that system in place just doesn't seem to exist in North America much anymore. And, you know, people who've wanted to come and work with me seem to think it, it's a should be a paid position and I'm like stop for a second you need to think of it as college you wouldn't go to a college for free you need to pay for your education um, and and Sadlers are small business people they could not possibly afford to just you know hand you an education um, even though they they desperately need to pass on that information that that training um, so it's it's a North American mentality. It is very, very tough when you find that, um, you know, how to access the education is, is limited. But uh, I strongly encourage the, <laughs> you know, the courses, um, whether it's in England or the school in, in the States. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is very, it is much more challenging there to, to do a, to, to get a foot on the ladder because and this is why the SMS brought in also this mentorship scheme. So I've had uh, several apprentices over the years now. Um, and I actually, the one, my last one in Canada took over my business when I left and came here. And I spent the last two years training somebody here in saddle fitting. She's not going, I don't think she'll become a qualified saddler because she doesn't do the bridal work and this sort of thing. And she has me to do her bench work. Um, I've also just taken on another 
student on the mentor under the mentorship scheme. She's moving to Portugal in April, and she's actually um, she's a sports massage therapist for for horses and humans. And she's actually diversifying into saddle fitting. And then I've also had somebody else inquire um, who's basically worked with horses her whole life, uh, very experienced. Um, and, and she also now wants to, to go on and look at saddle fitting as, like you say, as a second career. And the, my apprentice is now, after, after about two years, I'm confident in letting her do saddle fits on her own. That's two years of training out on the road with me pretty much you know every two three two days a week at least and then workshop time and a lot of people i think obviously if you're a long way away from you know like a master saddler or somebody that, that you can train with that becomes very difficult so the mentorship scheme came into being whereby it's acknowledging the fact a lot of people will go and do a, a, like an introductory course in saddle fitting and then they're going to go out and work as saddle fitters and like you i'm this frightens me somewhat because I know how much the sheer volume of information, the variables I have to take into account when I'm looking at a saddle fit for horse and rider. And I think this is 20 years down the line with a lot of experience and previous experience of rehabilitating horses with some of the best minds in the UK, vets, farriers, physios, etc. And there are still days I stand back and look at some of them and go, oof. I'm not really sure how to do this one, but I have this massive pool of experience I can pull on. And these guys are going out after, like you say, a, a course, maybe a couple of weeks, whatever. And they're going into saddle fits. But the difference is that they don't appreciate the difficulties of that saddle fit because they're not experienced enough to appreciate how difficult the job is. Um and yeah, that the potential for a disaster is is pretty high at that point, unfortunately. You know, so it's training is really it's it's the answer to everything, but accessing it is a big problem. That's where I feel the mentorship and and you know the few podcasts I've done now, and then you know when it comes up that a quality mentor is is invaluable because. Okay, best case scenario, you're you're doing a traditional apprenticeship and learning everything, you know, the right way, and and so on and so forth. But the, without mentorship, it's uh, difficult. But even, I almost put a higher price on that someone that you can call or shadow, or you know, when I started, I I I used all the free time I had um, sold everything that wasn't bolted down to a, to go and, and fly to England and shadow, um, you know, a master saddler and, and understand all the things and, and just get, and that was just getting my feet wet, but it, it the, it's the mentorship, it's someone to email or call. And uh, even if it's to just say, you know, here's the autopsy on something that just happened. I need to make sure it doesn't happen again. So it's um, usually, um, you'd think it's, you know, usually most people are quite happy to mentor someone. I think apprenticeship um, can scare people a little bit and, you know, as far as offering an apprenticeship. But I think mentoring someone is very rewarding, I think. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think it's probably a more practical alternative for most people that want to get into the trade. If you can get in and get an apprenticeship, fantastic. It's the best way to go. But as you say, a lot of people, if, if you're a small business or you're maybe a one man band like myself uh, and you have to make a living, the time you take training an apprenticeship is immense. An apprentice is, is immense. It really is. And the first year, honestly, really, your apprentice is going to end up costing you money because they take your time. They they waste a lot of leather, to be honest, until they've refined their skills and cutting and edging and all the rest of it. Uh, they drop your tools on the floor. They spill your edge stain on your floor. And, you know, it's it's the first year, really, apprentices cost you quite a lot of money uh, and lost revenue. So I can see why a lot of saddlers are reluctant to go that route. Mentorship, I I agree, I think is is easier. And I, I, I take my hat off to mentors because I think really a mentor is an absolutely invaluable resource when you're learning the trade, and especially you know, looking at Canada and North America, particularly um, when you could be hours away from a master saddler or your mentor, actually having somebody that you can email, pick up the phone, like you say, fly across and spend a few days with them. I think that is an absolutely invaluable resource. It's a really, it's a good scheme. And I think it's, it's not as good as an apprenticeship, obviously, but I think it does fill that gap in the middle and it's a practical solution for most people. Yeah. And personality wise, I know for me personally, the, the going for a week, um, like even I was on my own running my own business and I, you know, I'd said to my wife, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go, uh, there was a school in Scotland in the Gala Shields, um, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful people. I hope to have them on, but, uh, I was like, I'm going to go take this course. And she's like, why, why? I'm like, I guarantee I'll get something out of it. And, you know, to me, it, it this is just a never ending journey, like the education and, and actually going and learning from someone that you know uh, it's fun to make fun of them a little bit take take the mickey a little bit but you know when they're talking about making their own thread and doing things like just in a time gone by and now I'm just like oh tell me more granddad (laughs) you know like it is a little bit it's to me interesting because it's it's from a time when there would have been um, thousands of working saddlers or, or many, many kidding out cavalry and, um, you know, sending orders to off to far flung, flung places. And it, it just would have been uh, an amazing time where the skill uh, density of skills would have been just incredible. Yeah. And I think as we sort of gone on, you see more and more saddles, saddle production being farmed out. It becomes like a production line. It's not skilled saddlers making the saddles. A lot of it is farmed out to other countries and they could be manufacturing saddles or clothing or whatever. It's just a production. Uh, there are still quite a lot of working saddlers who are carefully crafting their saddles and making a beautiful job of it. But yeah, I think when I did my apprenticeship, we learned 
how to make our own thread and sort of things. And I, you know, I have used that on odd occasions over the years when I've I've been somewhere that we didn't have the right size of thread. Oh, hang on, I'll just whip up a four chord because we only have a three chord or something. So it is, it's absolutely vital that we pass on the skills and like you say, the, the older traditional skills too, because a lot of sadly hasn't changed. And this is one of the things I, I see a lot that there's so many new things coming out on the market. There's always a new saddle design that's revolutionary or something coming out on the market. You know, and um, it's there's a lot of claims about this is going to supersede everything before it. But a horse is a horse, and a saddle is a saddle, and a rider is a rider, and the basic structure doesn't change that much. So I, I think it would be a great pity to lose a lot of the traditional knowledge and skills. And that's why, I, like you, I'm, I'm very pro-education. At some point, I want to retire completely. I want my knowledge, my skills passed on. Um, you know, I, I don't believe in being selfish with my knowledge or my skills. I want those passed on so that in, in the interest of the animal's welfare, I came out of equine welfare into saddlery, and my heart is still very much with equine welfare. So I think it's vital that we pass on our skills. It's just a case of finding the best model, as it were, to, to do that efficiently. Yeah, I agree. And it, I'm I'm always a little saddened when I hear someone that would share a technique or um, something because they were, you know, sometimes you run into a mentality of, well, I had to learn the hard way. Um, so should you, or, or they seem to put value on the harder the information is acquired, the more value it has or something. And I'm just like, you know what, just if you need to know something, I throw it out there all the time to people. Just, just ask. Um, so I'm curious of all the places that you've, you've lived and worked, do, do you find there's differences in mentality towards what you do or to the horses or to um you know like in canada do we typically do something that's uncharacteristic of anywhere else you've been i would say yes the the mentality varies quite significantly country to country um in canada um and actually, Portugal is a little bit similar. There was when I when I got to Nova Scotia, there was a certain amount of, um, well, what's what's saddle fitting and why do we need to do it? And even even after fifteen years, I would still get the people that would say things to me like, "Oh, I have one of those saddles, and I get this here too." You know the ones they fit everything I put them on, and it's one of those where I'm kind of like, "Okay, right, just take a breath." and be diplomatic you're a professional and you know I mean I'm fortunately I'm one of these people that everything goes across my face so even if I school my thoughts and it doesn't I don't blurt them out of my mouth my face is still saying basically what my words aren't but then I you know, say well actually no I don't know those saddles because they don't exist those saddles do not exist they only exist in your mind and the reason they exist in your mind is because you're not educated enough um, or aware enough of your horses to realize that what you're doing is actually causing them pain and damage. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't make you terribly popular, but you know, I've never really gone for the popular vote, but yes, there, there is. And, and here as well, they've never had saddle fitters, particularly here. There's, there's people sort of come in from other countries and done a bit. 
Um, and there are there's some amazing, amazing saddle makers, but saddle fitting wise, um, I would say here is probably a little similar to Canada. It wasn't unusual in the beginning there to go out and find people riding in broken trees, twisted trees, horses with really sore backs, riders with sore backs because their saddles were crooked or they didn't fit properly or whatever. Um, an awful lot of um, myth isn't the right word, but it, it's there's there's a lot of um, oh, what's I don't really find the word that people have ideas that actually are very very outdated and very incorrect, but they don't want to let go of them because that's what's been passed on. Uh, well, my instructor told me or my friend told me, and there's so many, so many, I'll say myths or urban legends about saddle fitting and what it should be. Um, and there's there's some good knowledge out there, but there's an awful lot of very, very incorrect knowledge. And unfortunately, you'd think with the Internet, things will be getting better. But I'm not sure it's not getting worse because there's so much information out there. Yeah, I didn't an experiment one time and I had uh, a young person I was going to hire and I said do me a favor I'm going to pay you go on the internet for two days just just research um, then do a little presentation to me on on saddlery saddle fitting whatever and the amount of misinformation that she was able to dig up and just through a naive new eye, she was reading it all as if it was gospel. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I expected her to come back with, you know, a bit of shock of, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But no, it was marketed so well that it was like, you know, people writing articles. And uh, now we have uh, people doing YouTube t tutorials and things on, you know, let me tell you how a saddle fits. And I'm thinking there's you know a billion variables that go into you know you you can't just hand someone you know a sports car without teaching them how to you know the apex of a curve you know <laughs> type of thing um i think in england too if 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 you or or scotland britain that i think in particular there they see saddle fitting more proactively and in North America, I only ever see it as a reaction. Like, oh my God, I need my saddle fitted. And I, I always say, yeah, probably about three months ago, because by the time you're recognizing the issue, it probably has been going on for some time. Do you feel agree or disagree? Oh, I absolutely agree. Because I think back to when I was a child, which is quite a long time ago, I mean, we were we were having our saddle fitted. So going going back 40 plus years, we had our saddles fitted every year by by a saddle fitter. I mean, that's going back quite a long time. I remember my all my ponies. We that was one of the things you did, and it, it's always been something when you when you bought a saddle, you got your saddle fitted. Um, and that's why I think I was so surprised when I went to Canada, because I really didn't appreciate how how different the mentality was or how far behind Canada was in in that sort of field of salary and things um so something that we'd always just accept that's what you did as part of having a horse suddenly you're faced with well why would we bother and i i do agree we were we were much more proactive and a, a little bit the same here people tend not to call like yourself or myself in 
until they have a, a significant problem. And quite often, as you say, the problem's gone way down the line. It's not, they didn't call you at the first sign of the horse being tense when the saddle was brought towards it. They wait until the horse is, it can't do a flying change, is bucking, is rearing, it's, you know, he, he's flinching. He, I mean, there's a whole host of problems yeah. uh, and odd behaviors that can be associated with poor saddle fit. Uh, and and I agree. I think I think your three months is is probably quite generous. I think some people are sort of a year, six months, a year, two years behind the ball. Um, and yeah. as you say, I mean, saddle fitting should be proactive. It should be part of the your your care routine for your horse. That twice a year minimum, you get your saddle trekked, and you learn to recognise behaviours, um, you know, such as nipping, being girthy. Uh, problems mounting, etc. Recognize these behaviors for what they are. The horse is communicating to you, I'm not happy, I'm in discomfort, I'm in pain, I'm stressed, I'm frightened. And in, instead of writing the horse off as, oh, he's moody or he's bad tempered or she's sensitive or um, one of my favorites, she has a cold back. I said, no, it doesn't have a cold back, it has a sore back. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, one of my favorites. Know, yeah. It's having the education to to recognize these behaviors for what they are, which is a warning sign that things are going wrong before the horse has to escalate to the degree of rearing, bucking, bolting, whatever. Um, I, I think that would be an immense step forward in equine welfare. And this comes back again to educating owners, um, riders in what to watch out for with their horses and and not to just assume that, uh, it's just just him being him that, that this could very well be related to not just poor saddle fit but poor bridle fit to uh, poor foot balance poor riding whatever but saddle fit should and bridle fit and bitting should certainly be con considered yeah. in that i do see it moving more from the fringe um to to more mainstream and it, it's like the progression in, in North America that, that more people are accepting it is, you know, um, you know, I see the rise of, of um, bit fitting and bridle fitting getting there and people paying more attention to, to things. So I think we're moving in the right direction. So, I mean, not quick enough, but we're getting there. <laughs> um, I mean, then that's the point of this. So the one thing I see uh, in North America, I think, and, and I mean, my backyard is is people starting out wanting to get into this and then you know it's about 18 months where they throw their hands up and leave um is there something i mean personally i feel it's because they maybe thought it was easier than they first had thought but i'm I'm always looking for ways to like, wait a minute, we need, we need these people, but there's a shortage. So do you have any ideas of how we can help get the right people in and, and retain them? I think that's a really, that's a difficult question, actually. How, how do you retain people? I think, yes, I agree. I think people quite often are going in with a bit of a blinkered vision and possibly not quite so much in the UK, although quite a few people that I that were training with me in Salisbury uh, through apprenticeship, apprenticeships, they actually did drop out, again, round about that mark, as you're saying. Um, 
I'm not sure why that sort of 18 months, two years, is is that the point at which they realize this is not for me or uh, this is taking too long or I can't afford it. I think certainly in in North America, I think there is an expectation that it's going to be easier than it is, that you can, you can go and do uh, a a course, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, whatever, and and you'll be you'll be good to go. Um, and, and I think realistically, people need to go into this with their eyes open, saying like this is going to be years of an apprenticeship and a lot of work. And yes, I can make a good living at the end of it, but you know, you wouldn't go to to college or university uh, to to qualify as a teacher or whatever and think that you're going to be able to do that in six months or a year. You're you're in it. You know you're going in for a three year degree. Yeah. Um. And I and I think, like any other um profession, salary should be should be seen like that. Um. I I think also it's, um. I I mean I I love what I do. I really do. And I'm really glad I have uh mentees and apprentices coming up. Um. I'm glad you know they're they're sort of following on and they've stuck with it and stayed in the business and things. Um. I think sometimes I, I can't help wondering if if they leave because they get a bit of a taste of of how challenging it can be. Because you know we all love our horses and we want the best for our horses, but unfortunately with that comes um, quite often quite a degree of of stress from the owner when things aren't going right. And what I do see uh, is that. The saddle is because as you can see the saddle, it's something tangible that often gets the blame for for causing the problems in the horse. When quite often there's a there's an, there's another underlying cause, like a arthritis in the front leg or in the hocks or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I I can't help wondering if perhaps people they go out and that honeymoon period, that first eighteen months, the excitement, the honeymoon period's kind of over, and they start to realise how much responsibility it is you know fitting saddles and and bridles and bitting and things uh, and also how much kickback you can get when it when things do go wrong even if it's not the saddler's fault and those of us that have been doing it a lot longer um you know more experienced possibly a little bit more hard-headed sometimes i don't know I'll speak for myself here um you know you can take it but i'm not sure it doesn't put people off in in the beginning they're just getting to that point. They're just beginning to build their confidence. And I think sometimes they can get knocked back quite badly. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's uh, sometimes when you're, especially dealing with saddles that are asymmetrical, like, oh, my saddle's constantly going to one side. And you think as a saddler, you tend to, oh, I'm going to do the following things to get it to stay in the middle of the horse when you realize, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, let's examine root causes and um and things like that and it's sometimes and clients desperately want it to be a f um come on i'll write a check fix it and leave <laughs> you just think you know no 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 it's not that simple and you know it's it's a the long journey but um you know i always see that I, and i reach out reach out to people sometimes and just say you know <laughs> when you're feeling down when you're especially in north america where there's sometimes four hour drives between appointments <laughs> you're just like mm -hmm. let me just call me you know if you need to be talked off uh, uh talk down um <laughs> so um 
you know, we've come to a, a close here because I know that you and I can talk about it for 10 hours straight, but I'm not sure our <laughs> listeners <laughs> will. We, we just want to whet their appetite. Um, so for the future, I mean, do you feel we're moving in the right direction? Do you feel positive about the future of, of, of the the industry, saddle fitting and saddle, saddlery? I mean, saddle makers? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think that, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of twists and turns and bumps along the way. Uh, as you say, I think, you know, the, there is a more, more of an awareness. I know by the time I left Nova Scotia two years ago, I saw a huge difference from when I first arrived to when I left the, the awareness, the saddle of saddle fitting, bridle fitting, bitting, etc. Um, I saw a, a general improvement in the 15 years I was there, which is really encouraging. And I'm, I'm really, I was really pleased to leave that to, to Emily and, I know she's gonna she's going to have her own pitfalls and bumps along the road as well, but she's well equipped to deal with them. And I think it is an easier place to work now than it was when I first went there. Um here in Portugal, I'm feel like I've kind of stepped back a little bit to the beginning. But I you know, we're building up some clients here. Um it, it's a little more challenging here, definitely. It's like going back to the beginning and all over again. But we've done it once, I can do it again. And I mean, it, my idea is I, I actually would, would like to start a salary training school and run courses here with with the, um, you know, the SMS, if possible. It would be very nice to have a salary school here, sort of based on the same model as a North American salary school. So there is a structured training and there is an opportunity for people to come into the trade with structured training with an, uh, a chance to go and do formal exams and qualify and set this at least a minimum standard. And, I, and as you say, I think we keep we keep learning and developing. And I love being able to talk to my colleagues in the UK, um, in Canada, in the States, you know, and discuss difficult saddle fits or whatever. I think it's it's fantastic to have colleagues and mentors. Um, yeah, I, I do feel quite optimistic about the future. I think things are going to get better. I am. Um, I hope more people come into the trade and I hope that we can keep them in the trade. I think it's very, very important. And I think education of owners is one of those things is that, you know, we see horses and riders for a very, very small window. Maybe we see them for an hour and a half to two hours twice a year. That's a very small window in, in the grand scheme of things. We can't be expected to fix every problem they have in four hours a year. I mean, if you think about it like that, it's completely unrealistic. And I think educating uh, owners and riders is actually going to be very, very important in the long haul to get encourage people not to just come into the saddlery trade, but to stay in the saddlery trade. And um, it's something else I would like to do is run courses for owners so they have a better understanding of, of what is reasonable to expect from a saddle fitter or I, a bridle fitter. I absolutely like love said, that. Not yeah. just oh, the saddle's going crooked, the saddler needs to fix it. And it's like, yes, but it's on, the horse is on three legs. This is a veterinary matter. This is not a saddlery matter. And I think I, mean, I, have, a, I have a really good rapport with my vet and uh, osteo and various uh, therapists here and the same in Canada. And I think when we can, not just saddlers all talk together, but I think if we can talk together, the, you know, the, 
the, the therapists, the vets, the farriers, the saddlers, if we all talk together as part of a multidisciplinary team, and then we can all educate the owner, it, then it becomes much easier on all of us. And I think the chances of keeping good people in the trade are much, much higher. But yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic for the future, I must admit. Excellent. And um, on that note as well, like I, people thinking about getting into the trade, you know, I, I kind of stopped riding to do it so that four hours you were spending at the barn or whatever went into so i sometimes people think oh it's it's all this all consuming whatever but i i'm you know in this podcast i i'm getting to talk to people who are like no no i'll i'll sit on a horse in the morning um and then um you know in the heat of the day everyone's out and i'm doing my thing in the saddlery and then you know i'll hop back on um another horse or teach a lesson or and I and I'm discovering these people that are blending you know their passion literally they're they're just getting to to do saddlery and horses um, and it's similar probably I imagine you're riding every single day I try to at least work my horses whether it's long reins or riding whatever so I, I try and sort of um, I'm also uh, working training my dogs too so I I try and work two dogs and one horse in the morning before I work start work and then in the evening I like my evenings because that's that time is mine after that I, I don't have anything hanging over my head I don't have deadlines so I and I do like to go out and try and ride at least one horse in the evenings as well so yeah I do think it's possible I think I was given some really good advice before I ever left Scotland um it was a client of mine he'd been very high up um he was a diver and he was a, he was a supervisor worked for the offshore companies he was very high up and he was retired, took early retirement. He, he made a very good living. He was a very astute guy. And he said to me, piece of advice I'm going to give you before you go to Canada. Make sure you schedule, when you do your business plan, make sure you schedule in your time off and you stick to it. Because if you don't schedule in your time off and stick to it, and I mean stick to it, don't take calls, etc., you will burn out in the first year. And he was absolutely right. And I did listen, but I also did make the mistake of taking calls when I shouldn't have. And we're all a little guilty of, you know, taking a call at eight o'clock at night or seven o'clock in the morning or on a Sunday. And and now I have a rule that after six o'clock at night, I don't take business calls. I don't do messages. I don't tend to, to I don't work weekends as odd occasions, but I generally don't work weekends because and I don't start work before a certain time in the morning because this is my time to work my dogs, work my horses and find a balance between my private life and, and a, a working life. And I think if you don't have that balance, as he said, the best piece of advice, you will burn out and then you won't stay in the trade. Yeah. But I do think there is a balance. Now, and I, you're going to help all these other people ride their horses. And I have my, my Spanish horse and my Portuguese horses stood outside in the fields there. If I can't go and ride them, and enjoy them as well then what's the point it's just a lot of money going down the drain yeah as much as i love having them <laughs> oh yeah no but i mean this is you know career planning i mean if you say talk to uh young people and say that that are used to living this life of you know off school at three and then they go to the barn and then they get to work life and realize like no no like <laughs> the phone's never off and everything else and I'm trying to be like you know saddlery 
you can make a living and be flexible with the schedule. Like I'm often, uh, with raising a young family, finding um, that, you know, you know, my wife has a f- serious career that, you know, it's like, hey, the kids have a dentist appointment today. Okay, no big deal. I mean, I can just schedule around that easily, you know, much easier than someone who has a team of people waiting to have a meeting with them or so on. So, yeah, it's it's great. Well, thanks very much. I think um, we'll end it at that, but hopefully um, in the future you come back on because I think people will, will find you really fascinating to, to listen to. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It, I really enjoy talking to you know, other colleagues in the, in the profession. So it's, um, yeah, and it's something obviously we both are very, very passionate about and about, you know, sharing our knowledge. And I think that's fantastic. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. So anytime. Excellent. Super. All right. This is Rachel Argo, uh, Society of Master Saddlers, Master Saddler and Master Saddle Fitter, based in gorgeous Portugal, not far from Golga, the horse capital in central Portugal. And I'm listening to the Saddler's Post podcast with Christian Lowe. This has been the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening. The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit christianlowe.ca.